0: This podcast is produced by The Brand Is Female. Hi, I'm Mungi. Welcome to the Everyday Ubuntu podcast. This week's episode of Everyday Ubuntu is brought to you by our partners at HarperCollins Canada. HarperCollins is always pushing the boundaries of publishing, supporting authors and stories outside of the mainstream that address notions of gender, sexuality, and race. I just finished reading the novel Black Girls Must Die Exhausted by author Jane Allen, and I could not put it down. The book's story is centered around a successful young black woman who seems to have it all. A great dating life, a beautiful home, and a great job. However, an unexpected fertility crisis puts the protagonist in a tailspin. If you're looking for a fall read that examines the experiences of race, contemporary womanhood, and modern relationships, pick up a copy now. The second novel in the series, Black Girls Must Be Magic, is coming winter 2022.
1: The people who've impressed me the most are those who take what they do seriously without taking themselves seriously.
0: This week, my guest is the renowned journalist and broadcaster Zainab Badawi. Zainab has extensive experience in television and radio, working on a range of programs, including the BBC's Hard Talk. She is also the current chair of the Royal African Society, a Queen's appointment to the Board of the Historic Royal Palaces, and a Vice President of the United Nations Association UK. Through her own production company, Cush Communications, she has produced and presented many programs, including her most treasured project, History of Africa. She shares with me the lessons she's learned from her very impressive guests, as well as why she calls women's education the family business. Here's our conversation. Well, Zainab Badawi, thank you so much for coming on the Everyday Ubuntu podcast.
1: Thank you, Mungi. Great to be with you.
0: I'm so excited. And so I'd love to ask you my first question. It's about how our resumes are not a full explanation of who we are as a person. And I'm wondering what you would say is missing from your resume that people should know about you.
1: Ah, well, that's um, a lovely question. Let me see. I suppose I'd have to say my four children. I gave birth to two sons and two daughters, boys on the outside, girls on the inside. Mm -hmm. So I think of my children as a sandwich. The boys are the bread on the outside (laughs) and the girls are the filling, the very substantial filling.
0: (laughs) I love that. Children are important.
1: Of course, yes. I mean, look, you know, they're important to me. Obviously, I think people can read a very rich and happy and successful life without having children but I, for me personally, I wouldn't be anywhere without them. So I guess my identity as a mother is the overwhelming one and I absolutely adore every single one of them.
0: Mm. And you know, speaking of your resume, it's very extensive and you've done a lot, but I wonder what you would say is your purpose work.
1: My purpose work, that's An interesting way of presenting it. I do a lot of work, unpaid, pro bono, for a number of organisations in the public sphere, in the humanitarian world, and I have actually tried to marry my paid employment, the work I do as a broadcast journalist, with my interests. So actually, I feel that I have been very fortunate because I've managed to create a life of meaning and purpose, both in my paid employment, the -hmm. work that I do that pays the bills, as well as the work that I do um, just, you know, on a voluntary basis. So, for example, that would... um, be work in um, humanitarian organisations or advocacy organisations, such as Article 19, which is the London-based organisation that advocates for freedom of speech. I chaired that many years ago. The Royal African Society, which promotes greater understanding of um, African affairs in all its manifestations. So I guess I would have to say both my work that I do to earn a living, as well as the unpaid stuff, the two dovetail. I've made sure of that.
0: (laughs) I mean, that's kind of the dream.
1: You know what it is? Actually, I am very fortunate. Um, I mean, some people play it differently, don't they? They Mm -hmm. have their work and they do it very um, in a very committed fashion during work hours, and then they may have Outside non-work interests that engage them. Um, I, I, on the other hand, the way I my approach um, doesn't give you a lot of downtime because if you marry <laughs> your interest with your work, then it means you never really switch off. And I'm very interested in news and current affairs. And you know, all over my house, I have millions of radios dotted everywhere, and I'm constantly putting them on because I never really switch off. Um, I'm mad about opera, love opera, Italian opera and so what do I do? I sit on the board of the Royal Opera House and I also make films about opera. So um, I I guess that is the way I I do it.
0: Well, you know, speaking of your work, how did you get into media and, and journalism?
1: Do you know, the the world of journalism that I joined uh, about 40 years ago is very different from the world of journalism today. There is so much more of it today than there was when I first entered it. It it was a very easy path for me and I uh, had studied philosophy, politics and economics at university. I was lucky enough to be at Oxford University in England and After I left Oxford, I did another year's study in languages, thinking that they would help me in whatever it is I wanted to do. I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. And then I did exactly what I was just setting out, which is I thought, what am I interested in? And I thought, well, I'm interested in politics and current affairs and so on. So let me try and work in television. So I didn't go into print journalism. I went straight into television. And so I applied for a job as a trainee at independent television and got a job and that was it. So it was a very easy path.
0: Wow. And is there, you know, tell me if this question makes sense, but is there something about your role as sort of an interviewer of those in public life that has left a lasting impression on you, whether that's someone's bravery or perseverance or philosophy? You know, is there someone or has there been a theme that has really stuck with you?
1: Oh, I mean, I've done so many interviews that it's difficult to answer (laughs) that. No, sorry. Yeah. (laughs) And all people from all walks of life, you know, from presidents right down. But I I suppose what I would say is the people who have impressed me the most are those who take what they do seriously without taking themselves seriously. Mm. And I think that they are the people I admire the most. So, for example, Desmond Tutu, the Archbishop in South Africa, or the Dalai Lama. And you know, I I am very privileged. I get a chance to interview all sorts of people. And uh, on a program called Hard Talk, which is you know quite a long format interview, twenty four minutes. I'm sitting opposite somebody. So you can get a sense of them because it's a fairly intense experience and i would say that what i've learned from them is the importance of humor as well in diffusing tensions and um so it's it's a kind of adjunct to not taking yourself seriously so um For example, you know, I said to Archbishop Desmond Tutu in an interview, I said, President Robert Mugabe of Zimbabwe has described you as an evil, nasty, little interfering bishop. Mm -hmm. And he looked at me with a look of horror and I thought, oh my goodness, I shouldn't have been so mean asking that question. And then a few seconds later, his shoulders shake up and down and he's laughing. And he says, did he really say that? And he's, you know, overcome with mirth. And and then, uh, you know, and I thought, well, that's one way of dealing with criticism. You kind of brush it off by uh, having that kind of reaction. It shows what you actually think of it rather than becoming very combative and thinking of, uh, you know, an equally rude mm-hmm. Um And so I guess that's what I've learned from, um, from people. And not to be evasive, I, I think being truthful or as truthful as you can, because sometimes you can't always say everything you want to, you may compromise somebody's security and so on and so forth. But I th- suppose they are, that's, that's the lesson I've learned. And, you know, people think that television, you can kind of dissemble on television, but actually, uh, television is quite good at, um, you know, spotting frauds, as it were. Yes. It, it doesn't like, mendacity or people who look like they're perhaps evading the truth so I've always tried to be um, as as honest and as direct as I can and not to take myself seriously and where it is um, not in bad taste or it's acceptable is you know to deal with some to have a, a more relaxed and you know approach, and also to diffuse some situations with humour.
0: You know, it's funny that you mentioned that because my grandfather's turning 90 in October, and I wanted to write some lessons that he had taught me. And the two things you just said about him were the first two things I wrote down was the humour, and the not to take yourself too seriously. Yeah. So that is just very, it's just, I think it's what he sort of taught everyone.
1: When's his birthday in October? Speaking as somebody who's also in October, October seventh. Oh right. So say to your grand grandfather, he's in good company. Tell him hi. Zainab is Libra, <laughs> like him. <laughs> I'm I'm a bit earlier in the month, but yeah. Um, but you know, I think um, also what I think I have learned from people I've interviewed is also the the need to. Communicate effectively, and you can I can interview the cleverest people in the world, but if they can use obfuscatory language or cannot relay complex thoughts in a simple way, it's a complete waste of time, mm-hmm. so I think that ability to communicate in a simple way is also a very, very important one uh, you know a, a some a complex idea expressed in a simple way is much more powerful than one that's um, relayed in a complicated way. And sometimes I do find that people are trying to impress others with their knowledge and end up being very convoluted. So I suppose there's some of the lessons I've learned.
0: Yes, and and speaking of evasion, you know, I know that you were the first person from Western media to interview Omar Abdel Sheer after he was indicted by the ICC Oh, yeah. And I'm wondering, <laughs> mm. I don't know, how do you prepare for something like that? And and how do you feel it went?
1: What would success look like in that situation? Yeah, so that was back in 2009 and mm-hmm. he was president. And of course, 10 years later, in 2019, Amr al Bashir was uh, toppled from power by a people's revolution in the Sudan. Well, look, speaking specifically about that interview, I was born in the Sudan, but I've lived in the UK since I was two years of age. So that was a somewhat unusual interview for me mm-hmm. to undertake. So when you ask how I prepared for that, it's it wasn't a very difficult one, because obviously having been brought up by Sudanese parents, and although I've lived in the UK since I was an infant, I obviously was very aware of the country and what was going on. And I can speak Arabic fluently, and the interview was conducted in Arabic. I asked him the questions in English, and they were translated for him, and I could understand him more mm-hmm. or less. So, that kind of interview wasn't a particularly hard one for me to prepare for. Um, it was a scoop, it was an exclusive, it was great to have got. You know, I won an award for it, so that was fairly gratifying. Um, But in general terms, when you prepare for an interview with somebody who has to be held accountable, Mm -hmm. then you make sure you do your homework, you make sure that you're not advancing your opinions yourself. I'm not saying, look, I think you're a war criminal. You've got to say, so-and-so has said that you've got a case to answer. And that so-and-so person has got to be somebody of substance. You know, it's got to be somebody where they can't shoot the messenger in order to diminish the message. So, you know, if it's from somebody from the United Nations, somebody who hasn't got an axe to grind, um, then that's the best way of presenting the arguments to that person and just ensuring that they answer the question and they answer and you say, I'm sorry, but you've not actually addressed the specific point I was making. Um, right. So you've got to be fairly tenacious, you've got to stand your ground, um, it's a fairly, it can be an intimidatory kind of atmosphere you're in, you know, I've been in interviews where I'm surrounded by the teams of the person I'm interviewing and if it's felt to be a bit unsympathetic or a bit hard, you can f- kind of sense the body language around you and the,
0: the energy. Yeah, and the whistling
1: yeah. and so on and you've just got to carry on. And, you know, I'm not intimidated at all, and sometimes somebody might try to throw you a few seconds just before the recording starts, um, you know, I've had that kind of tactic thrown at me to try to throw me off balance, but you know what, I don't scare easily, so <laughs> that's, that's the, that's how, that is. does that answer your question? Okay. Yes, it does. Mm.
0: Thank you to our partners at HarperCollins for their support of today's episode. We are all about supporting women on this podcast and so are the publishers at HarperCollins. They invest in authors who are writing stories about women, for women, and by women. The Spectacular by Zoe Whittle, author of the Scotiabank Giller Prize shortlisted novel, The Best Kind of People, is a novel that challenges the societal notions of motherhood and the unspoken topics surrounding motherhood such as miscarriages and postpartum from a queer mother's perspective, The Spectacular is an inclusive novel that speaks to mothers of all ages and orientations. This is a read that you don't want to miss. You can find it wherever books are sold. And you, you, know, you mentioned that you are also from the continent, and I'd love if you could speak about your History of Africa series and sort of what you were hoping people will take away from it, would have taken away from it if they've seen it. Um, and also, I read that it was your sort of most valuable project to date, and I'd
1: love to know why. Yeah, well, you've hit the, you've pressed the passion button there with me. <laughs> so, how long have you got? I know this podcast only lasts for half an hour or so, but okay, tell, um, us, tell yeah, us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what? Yeah, I've worked in the broadcast media for forty years, and I'd have to say that this is the one project that I really, really absolutely value above all the others. Wow. And uh, 20, 45 minute programs, uh, you know, setting out the history of Africa as best I could. Obviously, you can't do justice to the history of a continent through many centuries in that amount of time. But I am satisfied that if you watch the series, you will know much more about Africa than you did you hopefully will be entertained along the way although obviously a lot of the subject matter is quite harrowing and you'll also most importantly be stimulated to want to know more Mm -hmm. and it took me nearly seven years to make this series from beginning to end and the reason why I believe it's unique is first of all it's derives its um, its knowledge and its research from a, a, a project which is unique called the General History of Africa, which was um, conducted under the auspices of UNESCO, the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization, at the behest of African leaders in the early 1960s. They said, look, we've decolonized our countries, we want to decolonize our history. Right. It's either been written by outsiders, denigrated, or we've been told we don't have any. So I based my research on that. But what's so magnificent about this work is that it's Africa's history written and told for the large part by Africans themselves. And that's what I replicated in the series. Everywhere I went, it's not really a history of countries because there are 54 countries in Africa (laughs) and there aren't 54 programs. And obviously, a lot of these countries were created quite recently, recently being, you know, in the last 150 years, 130 Mm -hmm. years or so. So, um, but in every everywhere I went, I would only speak to people from that country, Ethiopia, Ethiopians, Mali, Malians, Congo, you know, Brazzaville, Congolese people, and so on and so forth. And um, that is very powerful. It's not me, Zainab Badawi, going around telling you, this is what I think, pontificating. Um, it's actually, I act more as a kind of intercessor between the viewer and the experts and the ordinary people I also spoke to because how they see their history is important. And the film crews I use everywhere I went, the telling of the story, it's also important to ensure that those people who capture the images are also from that country. And I just feel that ancient Africa has been neglected and that the vision of how we see Africa, you know, has been frozen in time. So colonialism may have died but the way many people view and think of Africa is still frozen in colonial thinking Absolutely. and that's what this series tries to overturn to say look Africa has a history institutions um, culture which is worthy of examination and I believe that uh, that is what this has done it stands the test of time It's based on real scholarship, you know, huge amounts of research. You know, what is the figure for the number of enslaved Africans who crossed the Atlantic during the three centuries of the transatlantic slave trade? Twelve and a half million. You know, that figure alone took a great deal of research to uncover um, with the help of UNESCO, you know, and every fact is not only double checked, but triple checked. So. uh, And I'm now working on a book which is drawing on some of the information I garnered in the series, which is a kind of basic general readership about Africa's history. Because Africa's history didn't just start with the transatlantic slave trade. You know, there's a history of which we as Africans, and that includes me, of course, should be extremely proud of. And I don't make comparisons. I don't say, oh, look, this was what was going on in Europe and so on. No, 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 no. This is just Africa's history, telling it as it is.
0: I appreciate that because it, it moves away from this sort of being a voice for the voiceless, as people love to say, and just, you know, giving someone your platform and letting people tell their own stories.
1: Absolutely. You know, the, the African historian, anthropologist, archaeologist, you know, cultural expert, uh, museum directors, they have been excluded from the international public space. You don't hear them speak. You don't hear um, Africans talking about, you know, the history that they are an expert in. You know, I go to the Kingdom of Benin in Nigeria and I speak to a marvelous professor who's from Benin, who, you know, has PhD, is from Germany. Okay, fine. but. You know, it makes the history much more evocative and believable and genuine when it is told from the, you know, by the people themselves rather than. So it's the African historian is put center stage mm-hmm. rather than the Africanist. I mean, there are many good Africanists, don't get me wrong, you know, right. Brit British. French, you know, historians who have a very sympathetic approach to the continent and write very well. But I just do believe that, you know, it's for too long, perhaps they have dominated to the detriment of the African intellectual. And it's time they claimed their place. You know, what, what would people say if you had a Kenyan talking to you about King Henry VIII, the Tudor king? in the 16th century in the UK, people would think, Mm -hmm. why is this Kenyan historian telling me here in Britain about a British king? You know, it seems odd when you turn it round, doesn't it? But equally, why should, you know, a a white German tell you the story about King Shaka of the Zulus Mm -hmm. rather than somebody from Southern Africa, South Africa themselves? So I, I think there is, you know, we have to invert that telescope and put the Africans and, and you know, it's not, give, it, yeah, I mean, in a sense, I suppose it's not that they're voiceless, their voice is there and willing to be heard, it's just nobody has really put them there. And then, you, you know, I think there have been some marvellous people, you know, who've done histories of Africa, like uh, Henry Louis Gates, Jr., you know, the African American, a very eminent African-American, and so on. But I, I, I still Ali Misrui, the Kenyan, yep. late, um, ac- you know, academic, but he focused only on East Africa, really, on the whole, whereas this is the entire continent. And I just think there's something very special about letting people tell their own stories. Do them the courtesy of letting them do that. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's yeah, like, I do. Give them the courtesy. Listen to them. So it's not a plug for my series, but it's all there available free of charge to anybody (laughs) who's got access to the internet. BBC Africa YouTube, The History of Africa with Zainab Badawi. Please watch. It's good if you can watch it from 1 to 20, but every episode is standalone. So if you prefer to do it that way and just plug into each episode that you are most interested in, that also works. But essentially, it is better to watch it from the beginning to the end. But please do and, and, you know, make comments on the pages.
0: Definitely. Um, we spoke earlier about how your sort of interests are intertwined with your work. And I wonder what sort of sustains you in difficult moments? You know, like you said that you don't really slow down. And so what keeps you going when you are upset or exhausted when you're having a tough time?
1: That's, um, you know, I'm a very optimistic kind of person and I, having had four children, I had them very close in age, that I actually don't have the luxury to dwell on anything too much. <laughs> That's the truth. You know, my, my youngest child has turned 21 and has only just finished university. And so I am at a time in my life where for the first time, so maybe you ask me that again in six months or a year. <laughs> but I've really never had a downtime in all, in which I could either bask in any kind of you know feeling down. That's the honest truth. Um, but I um, I exercise. I think that physical well being is a, very closely associated to mental well being. Mm-hmm. So I I do that. I I don't drink. I don't smoke. I've been a lifelong teetotaler. Um, you know, I'm not a binge-eater, comfort-eater, although I do eat chocolate every day. Um, I suppose, I, I don't know, I think, um, I, I, I yeah, I am just so busy all the time that actually I, I haven't really suffered from really, really, you know, bad down moments. Uh, The Dalai Lama gave me a shawl when I I met him and interviewed him, which he blessed and he gave it to me and he's a very, you know, regardless of what religion you pursue, he's a very spiritual man and really a very charming, lovely individual, you know, very humanitarian, very humane. And he gave me a shawl and I, I like that. And so I suppose, yes, that's my kind of little, you know, totemic possession, which I keep in my study, and every now and again, I may run my fingers through it. So perhaps I would say it would be that.
0: Oh, that's lovely. Hmm. And I'm a big proponent of girls' education, and I read somewhere about how girls' education is is like a family business. And I'm wondering if you could explain that to my listeners.
1: So, um, my great-grandfather was the pioneer of female education in the Sudan, where I was born. So I grew up with grandmothers who, if they're alive today, would be well over a hundred, well over, and aunts and great aunts with postgraduate degrees from Western universities. And my mother was not only a teacher, she was also a teacher of teachers. Mm -hmm. And you know, you're talking about the turn of the last century of the 20th century, when illiteracy in the Sudan would, for women would have been, you know, complete. And also illiteracy generally in the country was extremely high. The vast majority of people would have been illiterate. So for me to say that I grew up with these very powerful women um, as, as, you know, symbols of female empowerment it is because my great grandfather was so visionary and uh, set up schools He set up his first school in the courtyard of his own home. Mm -hmm. And as an example, put his own daughters, he had a lot of children in uh, in this school. And despite opposition from many quarters, he persisted. And to this day, my family, my uncle runs a women's university in the capital of Sudan. So um, that is why we call women's education the family business.
0: I love that. And then I'd love to know, who are the people who have inspired you?
1: Well, that question is really, I suppose, related to my answer about the fact that my great-grandfather was the pioneer of women's education. I would say that he has had a very quiet... I never met him. He -hmm. died quite a few years before I was born, although he lived to the ripe old age of 96. I would say that he... And the manifestations of what he did, i.e. my grandmothers, my great aunts, my aunts and my own mother are collectively the people who have inspired me the most. He, because he was a visionary and because he was somebody who swam against the tide and had the courage of his own convictions, was brave was iconoclastic. And I think that people who achieve great things are often people who are full of courage. And so I suppose that's been a touchstone for me throughout my life.
0: We, we're we all about family on this podcast, so <laughs> that's always heartwarming. What would you say is your greatest fear for humanity?
1: Oh, gosh, I have many fears for humanity, but um, I, difficult to, you know, say, oh, I believe in world peace, oh, I believe in the climate, you know, stopping poverty, world hunger, and so on. I suppose collectively what I would say is that, you know, I'm a seeker of harmony, and I think harmony produces good things, and therefore I think the avoidance of conflict and, uh, is very important, so conflict... Is my greatest fear for humanity? Conflict in all its manifestations, be it conflict between people in countries, be it conflict between countries, be it conflict between people and nature, conflict um, which means you have a, an unequal access to resources, so you have some people who are extremely rich and have more than they need a surfeit. Whereas for many, there's a deficit, you know, inequalities and so on. So I would say, yes, a very broad definition of conflict getting worse Mm -hmm. would be my greatest fear for humanity.
0: Well, as someone who studied conflict resolution, I'm here to help. (laughs) Yes,
1: yes, that's very, it's very important because you can't achieve anything with turbulence and conflict and as i said you know any conflicts within households you know which gives rise to domestic abuse and so on so i think that that yes my greatest fear is however you want to define conflict wherever you can identify it let's let's not see it you know increase and multiply
0: and then what would you say is your greatest hope for humanity
1: my greatest hope for humanity would be related to my greatest fear for humanity which is um seeing greater conflict so the avoidance of conflict in all its forms uh is what i would really hope and aspire to and uh, you know a world without want Mm -hmm. is is very important i've traveled all over the world and i've seen people who really have next to nothing and this is insupportable you know we cannot tolerate this um state of affairs where even people's basic needs are not are not met and i i think that a world that yeah is free of want and mm. um, you know a world at peace with itself in harmony as i said with nature pe- between people's so yeah it's a very kind of utopia type of view but you know <laughs> hey, why not think big, you know? I was going to say, if you think small. Yeah, you don't think anywhere if you uh, think small.
0: Yeah, you have to push people. Mm. So I support. Mm -hmm. Well, Zainab Badawi, thank you so much for coming on the Everyday Ubuntu podcast.
1: It's been my pleasure to talk to you, Mungi. Thank you so much indeed, and thank you for your very thoughtful questions. I've enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation today and don't forget to hit subscribe and give the show a rating and review wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Follow me at moongi.ingomane on Instagram. I'd love to hear from you and get your feedback on the show. I'll be back in a week with a new episode. Thank you for listening to Everyday Ubuntu.